There's a tendency in human nature that when you've done something big is to rest on your oars, that uh, you don't have to uh, do a much more exertion. Things are going in the right direction. And Coolidge uh, said, no, we got to do a lot more. Welcome to this, the first edition of The Last Optimist. I'm Mark Mills. I'm your host. I'm your navigator. We're going to talk about technologies and markets and policies. Uh, we're going to look at specific issues of the day. Look forward to the future, some of the past. I will be having guests uh, regularly. And today, our guest is Steve Forbes, who is one of these people you can say needs no introduction. And so he's well known to uh, most Americans. Uh, he is a writer, author, thinker. He was a political uh, activist in the sense that he ran for president, as many people know. What many people don't know is he's uh, something of a polymath. Uh, he's very adept at understanding difficult technical and financial subjects and putting them in words that are both correct and clear and understandable. It's, uh, I'm biased because uh, I've known Steve for a while. He's been uh, kind to me in my work and pursuit of preaching the gospel of reality. And it's been a genuine pleasure to uh, get to know him and his family, frankly. Uh, it's, it's just a great American, a great human being, smart, all-around smart guy. So I'm looking forward to uh, our conversation with Steve as the inaugural podcast for The Last Optimist. Well, Steve, thanks for joining me on uh, this inaugural podcast of The Last Optimist. But I, uh, it's a misnomer because you are with me, I think, one of the last optimists. So here, here we go. Talk about <laughs> the world and technology. And we're going to, what I'd like to talk about with you first, and, and let, me, let me begin by alerting all the listeners to make sure they're listening to your What's Ahead podcast. It's a delicious three-minute look at the issue of the day. And uh, it's really nicely done. Uh, it'll give you you listeners perspective that's valuable, but I, I love the format. I love the three minutes. And Steve's a, and he's very self-deprecating. He's a polymath. He'll tell you a lot about the politics and the, and the nature of the world. It's worth listening to. And as everyone knows, I'm, I'm heavily tech centric and we're not going to talk about specifically what the technologies are, though I'm happy to. Steve and I love to talk about technology. But what I want to focus on is the stipulation there's lots more innovation. Who can, who can dispute there's lots more innovation coming? So what I like to focus on is, is, is what, I, what I talk with Steve about a lot is the intersection of the innovators with the policymakers and the financiers. That's where the magic happens. The predicate is you got to have innovation. You need the microprocessor. You need the car to be invented, you need the flying car to be invented, whatever it is, your proclivity is that you want the magic cure for a disease. We want it to be invented, the innovation, but it doesn't become something. It doesn't flourish without policies that allow it and, the, and, the, and money. <laughs> and I, everybody knows money matters, right? So we want, I want to talk about what it takes to let the great, the next great way flourish and begin with history because that old adage, you know, history doesn't repeat it rhymes. The patterns are meaningful. And Steve, as you know, in my book, I begin by talking about the patterns of the 1920s that are evocative 
and I think predictive of the patterns of the 2020s, particularly the political turmoil. Everybody always thinks our times are uniquely tumultuous. Um, well, there's, something's always different, but we're not uniquely tumultuous. So what's of particular interest to me is not so much how much the 1920s were like our era in terms of the fears and the politics and the conflicts. There were a lot of those then, but the lessons of unleashing that happened then, that was the era in which the, the technologies became mature and viable for the car, for the airplane, for the radio, for pharmaceuticals. They had all been invented earlier and they took off in the 20s. And that, that was the, the magic flourishing of the 20th century began in the 1920s. And it's interesting that it wasn't the inventors that allowed it to flourish, of course, it, were the, it, it was the policies of the country, the framework of our system, the nature of America and Americans and the nature of governance and regulation. So that was the time, 1920 was the election that Harding got elected, as, as you know, see, with, on the platform of a return to normalcy. <laughs> and uh, lovely word. And he didn't, he didn't live out his first term. He died in uh, Coolidge, who became the president. You and I have talked about this. So I want to let you talk about what is it that happened then? You know, our listeners know once I say it, and they, and, and they can learn more by reading my book, <laughs> of course. What happened in the 20s, cars, you know, radio, airplane, pharmaceuticals, hype, you know, uh, the development of fertilizers that changed agriculture and the tractors and all that stuff. But why did it flourish? I mean, how did, how did the people who built those companies uh, find the opportunities, the money, the, 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 the regulatory frameworks, the tax policies that unleash them? And you've said to me, just, you know, it's one word, it's Coolidge. Well, that's right. And uh, thank you for uh, having me on. A great honor to uh, be part of this, of the great launch of a great show that the millions will listen to and uh, change the course of a civilization in the right direction. Um, <laughs> I'll take I'll take thousands and then we get to millions. I'll write you a check. <laughs> OK, just don't make it in Zimbabwe dollars. <laughs> It'll um, be in bitcoins, <laughs> which we'll talk about later. Go ahead. Sorry, Steve. Yes. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the point is a good one. Uh, people tend to think the past was inevitable, but the 1920s is an extraordinarily creative decade highly innovative and inventive. And it's gotten a bad rap because of what happened afterwards with the Great Depression. So therefore, if something bad happens afterwards, you think what happened before uh, was just a prelude and a bunch of mistakes that made the Depression inevitable. It was not. And in terms of uh, the 1920s, uh, what enabled it to uh, come into being it was not a Fitzgerald decade. It was uh, not just bathtub gin and the like. What made it so uniquely creative were the policies that were put in after World War I, you mentioned. And it's worth mentioning again today how troubled America was in the, uh, after World War I, even before World War I. Huge conflicts between urban and, uh, and uh, rural America. Very, yep. very real. Cultural, yep. everything else. In 1919, with the post-war inflation, which people did not understand, they did not understand inflation, you had strikes, industrial strikes, you had riots, you had anarchy, in 1920, before the election, you had a bomb go off in Wall Street, which killed uh, over 20 people and injured hundreds of others. People wondered whether the country was uh, going down the tubes. Revolution was in the air. Yeah, and we had race riots, too, right? I mean, a huge race, race riots riot. that took the lives of hundreds of people, rise yep. of the Ku Klux Klan. 
So America looked to be in a sorry state. And what was unique about the 1920 election was that the platform was actually meant to be something. Uh, normalcy, as you uh, uh, gagged, yeah. not, not the most eloquent word in the world, <laughs> but uh, the Republicans promised to pursue policies to uh, get America on track and uh, moving again. And among the things that were done was they, uh, uh, the railroads and uh, were denationalized, yep. uh, the, uh, which had been seized during World War I. The telephones and telegraph systems, which were big, the communication systems, were returned to, uh, uh, taken out of the hands of the government. Uh, you had a terrible depression in 1920-21, worse at the beginning than what happened in the big depression in 29. Uh, but uh, the government responded not by uh, intervention and uh, printing money, went in the opposite direction. They cut spending, took out wartime controls, reduced taxes, and uh, prevented new programs from coming in. And uh, so uh, no new entitlements. And as a result, uh, especially when Coolidge took over after Harding's death, you'd had a tax cut in 21, the economy was starting to recover. But Coolidge, with his Treasury Secretary, recognized this just has to be the beginning. There's a tendency in human nature that when you've done something big is to rest on your oars, that uh, you don't have to uh, uh, do a yeah. much more exertion. Things are going yeah. in the right direction. And Coolidge uh, said, no, we got to do a lot more. And he engineered his renomination, which was not a given at the time. He exhibited great political skills. What Coolidge did was he combined principle, even though he had held more elective offices than any president before or after, he never became a hack. He had hardcore principles and he had the political skills to get what uh, done that could be done. So you take the 24 tax cut uh, was not as much as he wanted. There are some elements in it that he did not like, but he figured, OK, let's take it and then we'll set the stage for even bigger things, which they did after he got reelected against two formidable opponents. The Progressive Party was a very strong force then. Exactly. Uh, got attracted millions of votes, hated yeah. tax cuts. There are members of the Republican Party who did not want tax cuts. <laughs> so uh, uh, Coolidge in uh, 25, uh, got it uh, 26, got a tax bill passed, uh, got the top rate down to 25, slashed other taxes, took more people off the tax rolls, cut excise taxes and everything else. And he also recognized that uh, spending was a form of taxation. And so every week he sat down with his budget director to uh, cut to find ways of cutting spending, whether it's changing the cloth and the, uh, the sacks that they carried the mail in, even little things. And so he's the only president, uh, certainly in modern times, who left the office with a budget smaller than when he took office, even though the economy had enormously expanded. And so as a, and he also uh, uh, understood that he was trying to create an environment where the uniquely American characteristics of creativity and innovation could flourish. As you indicated in your introduction, it's not enough to invent something. Chinese have invented a lot of stuff, but you need an environment where you can uh, continue to uh, take these things, improve them, put them on the learning curve, and to turn scarcity into abundance. So as also, as you well know, and you've written about it and others have, it takes about 20 years or so before something is invented, before it becomes a commonplace. Exactly. So in the 20s, you had, uh, yeah, cars had been around uh, with Henry Ford before uh, the 20s, but they really flourished. We had the biggest road building program since the days of the Roman Empire. Uh, telephones became ubiquitous. Electricity uh, became ubiquitous. Obviously, electricity had been around, but now households are getting, factories are getting it. Exactly. Uh, old factories you, uh, used to be by waterfalls, and they were very tall. 
because of the needs of power with, 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 with exactly. electricity, you could flatten them out and, and extend them. And uh, so uh, you had the rise of radio. Now, we don't think of radio today as anything except uh, something obsolete you listen to in, in a car, <laughs> maybe by satellite. But the idea that you could hear something over the, that a voice could travel over the air, not just a few feet, but thousands of miles was just utterly, utterly uh, miraculous to people. So you had the uh, great uh, innovative company at the time, RCA, exactly. you had the beginnings uh, of, of television. You also had labor-saving devices uh, that freed up, uh, especially women in the, who were then in the household, many of them, now were got free to pursue other things. Uh, you got the invention of uh, things like uh, iron, electric irons, uh, vacuum cleaners, refrigerators, Wash uh, machines. Washing yep, machine. Exactly. What people should do is just go online and look up washer board yeah, on, exactly. a, on a search engine <laughs> and see what it took to wash clothes before the washing machine. It was it just destroyed your hands. And this uh, ended that. And of course, we had the greatest robot of all times or one of the great ones with a tractor, which li literally liberated millions of acres that had been set aside to grow forage for farm animals because that was the source of uh, agricultural exactly. energy. Exactly. Suddenly you had this uh, seemingly ugly contraption called a tractor, and uh, it was not only more productive, but also uh, uh, made it possible to grow more food, and you had millions of acres freed up to grow food or grow woods back again, or exactly. uh, uh, four, suburbs and the like. We've reforested, so, we've reforested America, in fact, because of the uh, productivity of farms. Absolutely. Now that yep. created political problems because uh, <laughs> farmers, a lot of farmers suddenly uh, couldn't make ends meet. Yep. But uh, that's one of the things uh, requires political skill, how you handle these changes. But the bottom line is the 20s were not inevitable. And you look at other exactly. countries like Britain, where they made a lot of mistakes and uh, contrast their growth in the 20s with ours. It takes the right environment. So well, yes, inventive creativity, but you need like a garden. You need water on the garden. You need exactly. sunshine. <laughs> well, you also need a gardener who has who has common sense. Uh, and the gardener, of course, in this analog is the is the our policymakers, our political leaders. If I, it, the analogy that what how Britain didn't flourish as much as America, the other uh, classic example, which is a country populated with very bright people, is Russia. Of course, they had the the, the Bolshevik Revolution of uh, and. 1920s was the rise of the communist state. And they had, as the tragedy of the commons says, once you invent something, everybody knows how to do it, right? It wasn't like only America could make cars, only America could make tractors, only America could make radios and so on. Russians could do that, but their, their prosperity, the average per capita wealth was, grew at a tepid pace compared to the explosion in the expansion of lifespan, well-being and wealth in America. And what's the difference? I mean, Russians are smart people. We we we've all we all know lots of Russians, brilliant people. Arguably, some of the brightest people in the world are Russian mathematicians and chemists. And yet, they didn't flourish like we did. They they suffered under a Soviet system. So, but here, Steve, here's the thing that fascinates me. In that, you know, I've spent a lot of my life in. Uh, you know, I began really as a technologist and got dragged into policy, as you know, in the Reagan White House, and learned a lot about. Uh, the nature of policy making, the sausage making, as it were, and it's an important uh, part of governance in any society. But what was what was important about Coolidge? And for me, my my reading of his history, and probably you've read the same book, 
I, I as I have about Coolidge that your your friend uh, Amity wrote. Uh, what was it titled? Um, Old Coolidge by Amity Coolidge. Schles. Yeah, Amity Schles's book. And by the way, uh, since you promoted your book, I'll promote our upcoming documentary in the making on Calvin oh, Coolidge. That, I was hoping uh, you would. When is it, when is it going to come out? <laughs> uh, we hope to uh, get it uh, completed uh, by uh, late spring, early summer and uh, get it out for uh, this year. As you know, next year marks the 100th anniversary of Coolidge's accession to the presidency. And exactly. we want to be ready. It's uh, perfect because time. One of, one of the key things, and you just touched on this with Russia, yep. is who writes the history? which yeah. influences the present. And one of the great myths about the communists for years were, oh, they killed millions of people and all that, but by golly, they industrialized a backwards nation. Yeah. They had to break a lot of eggs, omelets, blah, blah, blah. Well, the fact of the matter is before World War I, Russia was experienced the highest growth rates in Europe. Yeah. They're the biggest grain exporter. Yeah. They were starting to become a major industrial nation and the Bolshevik revolution destroyed it. Destroyed it. So I think the, the timing of your documentary couldn't be more important because the lesson of history here for me that's critical is that the quality and nature of leadership, the nature of governance. I mean, I stipulate this in my book. I say it every speech I talk to students, you know, people, you know, sort of make fun of you if you're an optimist and you have to keep saying, look, I, <laughs> how we run the country matters enormously. The, the, to your point about looking at history, which because it matters so much, it is possible to Sovietize an economy. When I say that, I, I mean exactly what you just described. The, Russia as a nation was on the same track as America. All of the fruits of the, the proto-industrial revolution, and it really was proto. The steam age came first. Russia did benefit from that. But the beginning of the magic of the 20th century was extant in Russia too. And it was destroyed by the Sovietization of their economy and their people. And what a tragedy. And, and nations can do that. I mean, we know because it, it's happened. So now we come with an election year coming up, the next big kahuna, not the midterms. And, and Coolidge's anniversary comes incredibly portentous time. And what you just mapped out, which I just do in a page in my book, because my book's not about history as much of the 1920s. Maybe it should have been more, but what you just mapped out, what Coolidge did critically was, you know, and I know that he could not possibly have anticipated all the things that would be invented, all the companies would be invented from these new technologies. Everybody was aware of the car. This would be, to use a technical term, a no-duh, but not everybody had a car. Everybody was aware of radio. Everybody was aware of, of chemicals that could do magical things and make uh, medicines, but they didn't know how it would play out. Coolidge couldn't possibly have known how it would play out, but you know he had to have, in living in that, that time of incredible, the sort of bubbling up of innovation all around, be very optimistic about what the possibilities were without being specific. So what do you do? Do you say, let's direct the invention of a tractor? Well, Coolidge didn't do that, obviously. You want to unleash America's entrepreneurial spirit with you have to unleash by not crushing people. And that, as you know, means both in terms of command and control, but also in terms of taxes, his ability to see that was possible and to navigate the political system to convince not, not his political opponents, that's not enough, right? That takes skill. I think I would argue maybe it's more difficult to convince your political allies that having spent some time 
on this task, I, in some respects, that's more difficult because unless you, unless you have the animation of your political movement full throated and with you, it, it will fizzle out. And what he pulled that off and we need, I mean, not to get into the present about our current fecklessness and all, I mean, it, we haven't had a recent history of uh, that kind of uh, vision. My point is not to be political about one part or the other, because frankly, you and I both talked about this. If the right Democrat ran, we'll call him a Kennedy Democrat, a lot of Republicans would vote for him because that they want the policies. They're not looking for a party identification. Unfortunately, the bifurcation of the policies has become more extreme, right? Command and control, unfortunately, is much more in the Democrat land. But I see an awful lot of command and control instincts in the Republican field, you know, industrial policy. And in fact, let's let me turn to that to be specific to the present. <laughs> so the risks we have today, let's call them two countries to epitomize our risk framework, China and Russia. Russia, I don't have to say what's going on in Ukraine to say it's, it's obviously creating a massive political risk. And we'll, I want to talk with you later about We'll call the energy features and the trade features of that as opposed to the political features. But China, right? So China is our big competitor, true, economically, geopolitically. So Congress has just passed this massive $250 billion, quote, competes act, whatever, to compete with China on technology and legislation. And it's the polar opposite of the Coolidge approach. And instead of unleashing America, we have government taking America's money, because I have to raise taxes for this, and deciding what things we should build, deciding what the future is going to be, because they're smarter than the market, obviously. I mean, this well, is what, obviously- well, what, what, what that does is we play by China's rules. We play on China's playground, and we should instead play to our strengths. Uh, I did a piece recently, a uh, podcast, mentioning a couple of the names of the new boards that it would be invented. You, you'd think it came out of Saturday Night Live about uh, innovation boards and things like that, uh, that these bureaucrats could do better than uh, venture capitalists and the like in seeing the future. The fact of the matter is we don't know what the future is, which is why uh, uh, you have to have uh, that kind of uh, venture capital, why you have to have people trying to do things, even they don't know what the future is. And uh, the amazing thing is, as Matt Ridley and you and others have pointed out, we don't really know who invented the automobile. We don't really know who invented the computer. We know a lot of things came together that uh, made this possible. But, uh, and that's the whole thing about innovation. It involves periods of time, people building on what people have done in the past, learning what works and what doesn't work, bringing together in the ways, constant experimentation. And that's just not politically uh, feasible. And so uh, the Republicans exactly. uh, vote for this monstrosity and to throw in a lot of other junk besides. Uh, but uh, we, we, we should be using that money for uh, cutting taxes, uh, removing regulations. Take the energy industry. Everyone says, oh, we must be energy independent. <laughs> what made it possible was sure. the innovation of fracking exactly. both, uh, for natural gas and oil and made us even a relatively low cost producer. So we didn't have massive subsidies saying we need this industry because it's uh, in our national interest. Uh, we, uh, we, 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 be, we became very competitive globally. And, well, uh, and, and we did it with uh, microchips, as you know, in the 80s. We, exactly. We, commodity chips were no good at. The Japanese and the Koreans could do it better. But mm -hmm. specific designs to do great things, we're pretty good at that. 
Well, we're more than pretty good. In fact, we know that China has been working very hard. So they are, to your point, manufacturing at scale yesterday's technologies, not tomorrow's. And the, the leading edge microprocessor fabs, factories, uh, the TSMCs, the Intels of the world, the NVIDIAs of the world, where they, these things are fabricated are, are all in the West. And China's attempt to replicate that capacity is still failing. It was in the news recently that they, you know, they've spent billions of dollars subsidizing and controlling and directing. But the analogy I use going back to Coolidge's time is you can, you, can, you, you can imagine, right? The automobile was expensive, clunky, in, in a, inefficient in every sense in economic terms, unreliable, uh, un, unaffordable except to small groups. And, uh, you know, trains, trains were incredibly efficient at that time. I mean, they were collapsing the costs of goods, making travel cheaper. I mean, the trains changed so much of America. So you could imagine Coolidge uh, looking at the landscape and saying, you know, we're going to we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars in today's dollars. So it would have been, a, you know, inflation adjusted a small number. And we're going to make sure that the future the, of the, the future of the train is in our hand, that we're going to subsidize the railroads. We're going to put more rail lines in. We're going to put bigger steam engines and we're going to we're going we're to focus on railroads because, well, railroads were important. Well, yeah. So and here we are today. Came the diesel engine. Right, exactly. And, and along came the automobiles. The combination changed the transportation landscape. And then the airplane. He, he didn't subsidize yesterday's technologies. He didn't subsidize the future technologies. It got the hell out of the way, in effect. But, uh, and, and, you know, and he would give the right kind of encouragement, uh, such as with uh, air travel. He uh, went with Lindbergh and uh, did the things exactly. to uh, publicize these things these innovations, but he didn't think the government uh, could, could come in and do it, do it, do it themselves. Well, you know, one of the, one of the most delicious stories, and I think lessons for today's tech titans is the story of what Guggenheim did with aviation and Lindbergh. And you probably read it. Uh, I think we talked about the book about called Guggenheim that, uh, oh, I apologize to the author. I'll, I'll amend that at the posting. It's a delicious book. It's a new book about Guggenheim. And it really, covers a lot about him, but what was interesting, maybe half the books about his, not just his friendship with Lindbergh and, and Coolidge and Harding and the Coolidge, but what he did, Guggenheim is a tech billionaire of his day to facilitate the emergence of a aviation industry in America. It was a bottom-up entrepreneurial driven, but also I would say showmanship and diplomacy driven. What he did was was brilliantly diplomatic about threading the needle between the two worlds of the policymakers, keeping them happy that they get credit because they got to get credit, but keeping their heavy hands off. You know, I'm sort of hoping today, it, and, I'll, and not everybody necessarily would agree with this. I'm kind of hoping that Elon Musk will evolve into that kind of person, that he will have the combination of showmanship <laughs> and entrepreneurial vigor <laughs> to thread the needle, not for electric cars, by the way, as you might, but for everything else that he's doing, because, you know, that's the kind of stuff you want to have happen. And a guy like Musk, God bless him. He speaks out about the Canadian truckers and about taxes and, and over heavy handed regulation. That's, that's the kind of stuff we want to unleash more of. I mean, if people are infatuated with Elon Musk and his cars, great. How about let's unleash all that for everything else that's coming in the future? Yeah. Well, he, uh, even on uh, electric vehicles, which uh, I love his vehicles, I've ridden in them and uh, driven them a few times. Uh, I still don't see uh, the whole point of EVs, but the amazing thing is <laughs> this guy comes in and he does electric vehicles better than the 
American auto industry, better than the Germans, better than yep. the Japanese, better than the Koreans. Better than now the Chinese. He's over, now he's over a $60 billion company. I know. And, uh, and rocketry. Thank God he's on our side. He's far ahead of uh, NASA, China, and uh, Russia on rocketry. Yep. And uh, that's the kind of thing you want to have the environment where that kind of thing uh, can flourish. The Edisons of uh, the past, the Edisons of uh, today, the doers of today. And again, the thing about innovation, which governments can't understand, is at the beginning, things always look a mess. You take yep. the first Model A, not the right. later Model A, the first Model A of Henry Ford in the early 1900s. Well, they look a mess because they are a mess. And, 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 <laughs> and his partner, Ford, wanted to go bankrupt yet again because he knew this yeah. car was not working out. And his partner yeah. uh, told him, you do this, you're finished. No one's going to give you a dime in the future. We're going to have to put it out on the market. We know it's going to have a lot of problems. We'll try to deal with it and correct them in the future. We yeah. got to get this thing out. And that's how you get perfection is by constantly improving. Well, you know, and I have said, and you know this, I've said this in, in on platforms that you've been generous to let me uh, rant on in the before before audiences. No, <laughs> the the um, what Elon Musk has done is remarkable, and he has not only created a car company that works. And subsidies don't explain it. You no. you can't you can't get people to buy cars that expensive by discounting them by fifteen thousand dollars. You just people are buying them because they're damn good cars. He has engineered the best car battery in the yes. world. Others are catching up. But he's he's demonstrated, and it's an incredible piece of engineering. His space program is incredible. His solar stuff's great. And all of it, you give the guy credit. What I like that he said recently, the most uh, that is that he has sort of joined me and maybe you as a father. That the biggest problem in the future is there aren't enough aren't going to be enough people. Uh, we need to, in his mind, to encourage bigger families, not smaller families, because he's which means he's an innate optimist about the future. You can't encourage bigger families of not being an innate optimist. And of course, he's embracing robots and has now teased us that it's not just teasing about building a robot by a robot. I mean, an anthropomorphic robot, like out of Isaac Asimov's iRobot. He's now saying he's going to do it, which is, you know, I've written about. I think this is, this is extraordinarily interesting and important. But well, I wanna... what, uh, what you... Uh... One of the things that uh, people always fear about the future, whether going back to uh, that's how we got the character Frankenstein, yes, was uh, people exactly. fearing electricity and all that of kind course. of thing. And uh, uh, don't call it artificial intelligence. I love your <laughs> thing. Automated intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> that means it's working for us. We invented right. it and it's helping us. Automated intelligence, yeah. not some you, monster that's going to take us over and gobble well, us you up. Can, you can use one of two phrases. You can talk about intelligent automation. Or automated intel, you know, intelligent machines, but the, you know, the art, art, idea of artificial intelligence is like, as as you know, I've said, it's like calling a car an artificial horse. Okay, similar utility function, sorta, but it's obviously not a horse, artificial or otherwise. We could make an artificial horse. It'd be called a robot. And Boston Dynamics Spot Mini Dog is an artificial dog. I mean, it really is. It walks like a like a dog. It's sort of eerie and spooky. But let, let me come back to uh, the politics of the money. And, and Elon Musk is a perfect pivot around that because of the market valuation of his company. So the one of the other ingredients in innovation and the flourishing of America is money. And it's not just money, government giving money away. It, it's the dynamic liquidity and fluidity 
in the low friction of our capital markets, whether it's stock markets, private equity markets, even crypto, which I want to talk to you about in a second, but let's stick on the non-crypto world, the real, the so-called real non-crypto dollar world. You, the, the SPAC bubble, and I think most listeners know what a SPAC is, these special purpose acquisition corporations, which is a way to take essentially non-profitable companies public to access public investors. Or, or, I, or profitable. I, or profitable. There's a few profitable ones, which we, 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 you and I know there's one particularly interesting one <laughs> that begins with an F and ends with an S. Yeah, I got to be careful. I don't get in trouble with the SEC. I, yeah. I have to join Elon Musk. <laughs> exactly. You'll, you'll, you'll find yourself... Well, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. You could team up with him. It'd be a lot of fun. No, but seriously, uh, the SPAC, SPACs are fascinating because they obviously reflect, set aside the legality of people who are who go to the gray zones, because there's always gray zones in every, in every market. SPACs are a legitimate way for companies to go to access public markets for people who are knowledgeable risk takers want to play too, not just private people. I think that's, to me, that's a marvelous thing. And the fact that so many people want in them is partly bubble. I get that. But I don't think it's just bubble. I think it's people innately get that a lot of innovation is happening. And I, I don't have an opportunity to play in it, too. And that's what's exciting. Well, that, Whether it's, uh, that, that gets to the whole uh, thing about uh, democracy is that uh, because of massive regulations and difficulties of going public and being uh, the, and all the hassles you go through when you are public to get in the way of doing your real business, uh, a lot of companies get their real value as private companies, not as public companies. By the yep. time they go public, uh, mo mo most of the uh, gains are kind of over, or the big ones, moonshot ones. And SPACs are a way to uh, get around the uh, huge bureaucratic obstacles and get something out there relatively quickly. I say relatively compared yeah. to an IPO and uh, get perhaps perhaps on an early stage. Now, there'll never really be a clean out uh, bus of all sorts. Uh, but that's inevitable. How many auto companies have we had? Well, uh, how many, how many, how many, you know, right. you, you, go, you go down the list and uh, failure is the norm. But it's from that that we get the uh, ones that work and our standard of living goes up. Well, in fact, you know, without going back to the auto wage or something like 400 or 450 automobile companies created between roughly 1900 and 1920 that came and went. Hundred, literally hundreds of them, as you know, and we could look at the early computer age and talk about the 1970s, the hundreds of computer companies that came and went, and then the, the you know the big bubble collapse of Y2K, uh, which obviously was a big deal if you're an investor in the wrong stock, but that told you nothing predictably useful about the next 20 years. It didn't mean the end of technology innovation or the success of an Amazon, which nobody thought Amazon was gonna be huge in 1999. Come on, nobody did. If you, if you did everybody in the stock market, every, every investor would have had only Amazon stock or only Apple in 1999, if you, were, <laughs> if you were so brilliantly prescient. But the innovation flourished and, and it was because of that risk-taking. And I, I, this is what's exciting to me about SPACs. I read a lot of negative things about them. Again, stipulating people can abuse abuse every system, including just old-fashioned hard currency can be abused. But it, it lets other players bypass and play in the risk-taking knowledgeably. I don't think a single person I've ever talked to who's invested in a speculative SPAC, let's say a tech one, not a non-speculative one like, say, a Forbes, <laughs> but the, <laughs> I'm just, I, I won't get you in trouble. But don't, <laughs> don't 
they recognize this is high risk stuff. That's why they're playing it. They're not stupid. Investors are, are pretty sophisticated about the fact that high risk gets high reward. So they want to play. It's not a lottery and it's not gambling. Some people gamble. I know that, but it's, it's taking a bet. Uh, so let me, let's oh, talk about crypt, crypto, Steve. I, yeah. You know, you and I've talked about virtual currencies and I was fascinated to learn. I didn't know this fact. When Bitcoin came out, within a few years, there were dozens of cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin was the one that got the news. And now there's over 10,000 10, different cryptocurrencies. Most are platform related. I think of them as like frequent flyer miles because a frequent flyer mile or points on your credit card is a crypto virtual currency. But that set that aside, there's two things about that, that are interesting that I want because you, you're you're the money expert. I mean, your book, right? In Money We Trust was brilliant. Uh, and another commercial. A book on, I'm co-authoring <laughs> a book on inflation, which comes out in a few weeks. Oh, oh good. Well, then, what's it going to be? Inflation. Gonna, <laughs> it's called inflation? Yes. Perfect. Perfectly timed. We're going to talk about inflation then in a second. Um, I, I'm intrigued by crypto and, and the blockchain as a secure means of exchange, a means of exchange not a store of wealth, but a means of exchange. And, and that means of exchange, the blockchain can be used to create you know, pseudo currencies, cryptocurrencies, very different thing. Um, and I love the fact that everybody recognizes that it's an elastic currency. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I love the means of exchange and the velocity it implies about exchange, you know, exchanging uh, goods and trading in, in a secure way it allows people in despotic regimes to execute a trade, buy something, execute a contract securely. Wonderful thing. But elastic currencies? Um, no, uh, there are two, two things on, uh, on cryptos. One is the development of the whole blockchain technology and the individualization and the privacy that can afford. And when you see things like what is happening in Canada, maybe happening here, of seizing people's bank accounts, snooping yeah. on their bank accounts, uh, people are going to yearn for a way in which you can do something without uh, the snoops uh, yeah. using it against you or saying you have wrong views, therefore we're going to seize it. But the uh, problem uh, with uh, Bitcoin is it uh, magnifies on uh, steroids on steroids what's wrong with currencies today, the very fact they're volatile. When exactly. you buy a pound of cheese, you don't have a floating pound of cheese. It doesn't change <laughs> no. each day. And you buy a gallon yeah. of gasoline, exactly. uh, it stays the same each day. You don't have to worry, am I getting really a half a gallon? Maybe I get a windfall today of two gallons. No, it, it's uh, fixed weights and measures. Money measures value. And when you get that, exactly. which central bankers never get, you understand the need for a stable currency. It makes it easier to transact and do things for the future. If you don't know what, as you know, investing is risky enough, but if you don't know what you're going to get paid back in, it's a, you, can, you, you could have a seeming success, but yet lose half your investment because of what's happened to the currency. So it's uh, very important. And that's why if uh, our policymakers, and hopefully we're going to get some soon in the next few years, will understand if you get two big things right, other things will flow from it. One is low tax rates, like a yep. flat tax. So yep. people can focus on doing things rather than going around the infinite shoals and potential catastrophes of the tax code. The other is a stable currency. You do those two things, you move ahead. You can do all the other things right, but if you don't get those two things right, you're going to be in trouble. And great nations yep. 
don't have junk currencies. So, uh, and the best way to do it, and we say it in this book, I know it's uh, not for a polite company. So uh, you, you may have, a, have to have a button here for people who uh, may be- uh, I say, uh, you go girl. <laughs> you, uh, you, uh, you, uh, you, you, you fix it to gold. Why? Because yes. it keeps its value better than anything else. Not perfect, but it's the best thing we have. And it's worked. We've never had a financial crisis with a, resulting from a stable currency. It's always- other mistakes that bring on a crisis. Absolutely. In fact, let, let me let me emphasize this because what happens when you say those words, fix the gold, right? People think about gold bugs and old stuff. And it's yeah, so don't go into the hills with barbed wire and machine yeah, guns. <laughs> exactly. And and you, to your point, and I can't wait to read your book, but to your point, the the, the nature of exchanges, this is not an this is not new in history. It's not, it has nothing to do with microprocessors per se. It increases the velocity of an exchange. If you have a, a network that I can tell you, I'm going to trade something with you. I can talk to you more quickly. That started with the telegraph. That was a big deal. But the underlying metric of what the store value is, I, I you know, as you know, I sort of thought maybe we should think of it in terms of the physics of money, because in physics, you have units to allow you to make exchanges that cause interactions to happen in the real world, physical world. Machines move, they energize, and you have units that are fixed and never change. Just like in the world of commerce and, and business, we have to have units that allow the machines to work, machines of commerce. You have to have units that are right. fixed, just like in physics. And I, would, I will tell you, and I haven't read your book, so I'm gonna promote your book anyway, because I know it'll be good. The, the, Thank you. I'll bet. I'll bet it. I'll echo one of my formerly favorite books because yours will now be the favorite on inflation. There's a book called The Great Wave, uh, written by an economic historian at um, Yale. He's retired now, and again, I'm embarrassed. You know, in in the classic senior moment, and you could be a, have a senior moment at every age. Oh um, uh, yes, especially teenagers. If, is uh, <laughs> you bet that we've all been there, done that. <laughs> But he looked at the history of inflationary trends over all of history from the times of the pharaohs to the present. And that, in his case, the book was published in 1999. So the present predates this, this current commodity inflation. And, and he pointed out that the patterns are the same throughout history. And of course, almost all of history, except since recent 50 years or so, the world had fixed means of exchange, right? And the countries that failed to do that didn't do so well. And th these are not incommensurate things. If, to your point, if we take getting the two predicates right, if we have the, we'll call it monetary policy, right? But fiscal, financial policy matters too, spending. And we, we have our governance right. If we have those two right in the presence of the kind of technology innovation that's now underway, all of it equivalent to what happened in the 1920s. That's why I'm so optimistic that we're going to have this mass flourishing. But with the caveat, we better get the we better get at least closer to getting the other two right on this next political cycle, sort of echoing the Coolidge time. So I'm we, we won't talk about politics on this podcast in the specificity of who's our next Coolidge, but we <laughs> we have to hope we get one, don't you think? Yes, and uh, and uh, or Coolidge is, you know, yes. uh, you you yes. you want you want a lot of the people out there as we yes. had in times past to understand these things. And one of the interesting things about the whole crypto movement is the rise of stable coins. 
yeah. where you yeah. fix it to something. <laughs> Don't you love the there, name? Perfect. And 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 that way it can start to uh, done right. I think in the next few years you could have real competitors to government currencies. Uh, one harbinger is Turkey, which banned uh, those kind of cryptos because yeah. Turkey always devalues its uh, currency, the lira. And right. people there are now buying cryptos, a lot of Bitcoin, but also stable coins uh, that are fixed to the dollar or the euro precisely because they want an alternative to the government money. Right. And they'll trust the cryptos in that sense more than uh, what the central bank is churning out. It's, you know, that's a really important point, see, because the, and, and I, we, I'll wrap up on this note that I think the nature of the cloud and expansion into to all the citizens of the world gives so many people access to so much, including this frictionless network that allows a stable coin to function on. If you give so many people that opportunity to have their value we'll call it uh, seamlessly and invisibly stored outside of the control of the potentates and it's stable. This is a pretty incendiary combination. And obviously a lot of potentates fear it and recognize that they're not stupid. They may be potentates, but they're not stupid. Right. And uh, again, uh, if we get the right environment, uh, we've been uh, touching on uh, technology, but what you see happening in healthcare one is the rise of a consumer market. Now the companies yep. are going for high deductibles. People are becoming aware of what's being charged. Yeah. And uh, so uh, you're starting to see the rise of uh, markets there, consumer markets. And uh, I'd advise your uh, listeners to go online and uh, go to a site called uh, Sesame Health. Uh, and uh, it's, it's like a Expedia Priceline doctors list what they charge that day to do Ooh. a consultation or something like that. And another one is the surgery center of Oklahoma where they don't take insurance, just cash. Uh, they have to take some for legal reasons, but uh, it's a cash business and uh, their prices are about a third of what local hospital charge, even though they have board certified surgeons and everything else. And uh, that, that's kind of the future is the delivery of healthcare is going to be uh, radically changed when you have consumerism, if it's allowed. And the other thing are the exactly. breaks of being able to diagnose cancers before the symptoms uh, show up, being yep. able to do brain surgery through ultrasound where you don't even go into the brain. I mean, really, and, and closing on that, uh, you know, one of the things we all fear is Parkinson's and uh, they now uh, can do an operation uh, where uh, they don't cure the disease, but they can stop uh, the tremors, which uh, for quality of life is, is uh, huge, groundbreaking. Huge difference. If, and, you know, the, the, this is the mix of uh, consumer appetite and demand pushing the political system, coming at a time when the technology that allows us to have this visibility and transparency. In fact, Sesame, and the, the, even knowing what Oklahoma uh, Surgery Center is doing is because you can see it on the magic internet on the cloud. When you combine that with other technologies that I, I write about in my book, as you know, about the ability to uh, not only do telemedicine, you know, on a Zoom-like platform, but begin to think about the re remote haptics, touch and feel, remote diagnostics are becoming possible, virtual surgeries that are done in advance on, on a virtual you, so the surgeon can practice first without doing the practice on you. All these things are utterly upending it. And finally, we're going to bring both transparency and productivity 
the healthcare, which everybody cares about, to state the obvious. So we need we need uh, we need to uh, wrap up. Otherwise, we'll we'll in danger of becoming a podcast as long as Joe Rogan's without Joe Rogan's audience. And you know we need. <laughs> but Steve, this is it, it's uh, kind of you to to help me with my inaugural uh, podcast to kick off discussions. That I hope you'll come back because there's so much more we can talk about, especially as the, uh, the, the Coolidgeification of the America begins, and especially when your new book comes out and the and documentary. I want, I want to uh, get the book, and then we can uh, maybe talk about inflation and commodities and how we fight that. Terrific. And uh, thank you again for having me on as part of your uh, inaugural launch. Uh, very, very highly honored. And uh, thankfully, a person who understands technology and does not give into the fears that uh, the world's going to take us over. We're taking over the world. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Well, it's great to have a fellow optimist join me uh, on the first of the last optimists, because the future <laughs> is a bright one if we seize it, as you know. So thank you, Steve. Or cool. to let it happen. Yes, just, let it just get out of just get out of the way. But that yeah. that requires seizing some political sanity too. But yes, <laughs> a subject for another day. Thank you, Steve Forbes. Thank you, Mark. Well, thank you for listening to this edition, the first, the inaugural edition of the Last Optimist, uh, with my guest Steve Forbes. Uh, it's been a terrific exploration and a fun launch. And with that, thank you again, Steve. And I'm looking forward to having everyone join us on a future exploration of the future and the past with The Last Optimist. I'm Mark Mills. Until next time.